Over the course of 70 or so episodes, we've had on a number of data scientists, but today's guest is, I believe, our first data scientist to have come from the world of financial analysis and economics. After starting her career with the likes of IHS Global Insight and Mercer Human Resources, she has gone on to a number of roles in both business intelligence and data science. These days, she's a data science and engineering manager for CapTech Ventures, as well as a published writer on topics in the field. Stay tuned as we meet Vicki Boykis and hear how she has turned a few community college courses in computer science, a bachelor's in economics, and an MBA into a successful data science career. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Welcome to the show, Vicki Boykis. Vicki, great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and thanks so much for joining me. I know the world's a little crazy these days. Just for our listeners, <laughs> we are recording this during the, the global pandemic that is COVID-19. I hope and trust you're doing okay. We're all hunkered down here, me, my husband, and the kids. And I think we're okay as we can be for five days together so far. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. My uh, son just came home from college, too. They closed down all the dorms. So it's a little bit of a, <laughs> a change in our, our plans, for sure. Yeah, an adjustment. You know, I gave a little bit of intro on that teaser, Vicky, but I would love to just kick things off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, that intro was spot on. Uh, so I started with an undergrad in economics. I graduated from Penn State University. And then somehow I actually got a job in economic consulting in DC. This was actually during the last downturn in 2007. So somehow I got this job and I started doing economic consulting. And a lot of it was basically just doing Excel spreadsheets for a lot of different projects, doing forecasts, running numbers, putting together presentations, all that kind of stuff. So I started there, but I saw that the people in the office around me were using more complicated tools. So I saw that somebody was using Access. I saw that somebody else was using SAS, all that kind of stuff. So I got interested in data analysis on a larger platform than I had been taught in college about. And it was kind of like a larger world for me. Then my husband and I relocated back to the Philadelphia area where we're originally from to be closer to our family and because housing was a little cheaper there. And so I got started in my career in Philadelphia at Comcast. I did some consulting before that. And then at Comcast, I was a data analyst. And there I was on a team that was one of the first teams to kind of start working with Hadoop. And so I started to get exposed to a lot more engineering stuff than I had before. So I started doing SQL. I started writing Hive queries as well. I started getting into what was at the time Pig, which fortunately no one uses anymore. So a lot of that space, which was less analytics and more engineering, and I became interested in that space. And that's when I started going more from just um, 
analyzing and pulling SQL data to more uh, data science and data engineering type analyses. And that's where my career was headed after that. After that, I worked for a financial services SaaS company. And I was the first data scientist, first and only data scientist. And I got their kind of like data science infrastructure, reporting infrastructure, and all of that started. And that's when I realized what I really liked was kind of coming into a space and defining the problem and doing it end to end. And after that, I went consulting, which is basically that's the nature of consulting, regardless of uh, what you do in consulting is usually come into client. They want something to your job to define what that is and take a project from start to finish. So right now I work in the consulting space, I'm working mostly with larger companies, but also some smaller ones, uh, doing both data science and engineering projects. Although I find lately, like over the past three years or so, a lot of the work has been mostly engineering cloud data lakes stood up and then to get modeling going on around that than actually the data science piece. So that's what I'm up to these days. That's fantastic. You know, and, and before we dive in deeper on that, the tech side, if you will, I'd love to hear a little bit more like w what inspired you to go into economics in the first place and kind of that financial analysis? Was there some Something like in college that inspired you or perhaps in high school? Yeah, so I think there were two pieces. The first part is I always liked both math, but not enough to do it full time and English, but not enough to do it full time. So economics is kind of like that perfect intersection where you do a little bit of analysis and then you think about it and write about it. So that's really my sweet spot in pretty much any job that I do. And the second part is that I have Russian immigrant parents and they wouldn't let me major in English. They pushed me towards a career that was more scientific, but I felt intimidated by hard sciences. I didn't necessarily want to do them. So economics is also a nice compromise from that perspective. And it was also in the business school, which kind of um, gave them assurance that I would be able to find a job after I graduated. You know, there's the things you want to do and then there's the things you should do. And it, well, and it sounds like you were able to find kind of a sweet spot between the two, which in many ways is, I think, is one of the key attributes I receive really come forward in this show of people kind of as they navigate their careers. I think the other piece of that is it could have ended very badly if they had pushed me to do something like medicine or engineering. Um, so it's really about like my philosophy is you have to find something that makes money, but also in a way that is interesting to you and draws on your strengths and abilities. I'm very lucky that I ended up there. And I really think that like my later career, uh, moving into the data space was also kind of very much like a stroke of luck because I had no idea that it even existed. You know, so much of the advice out there is find your passion. I take a more nuanced approach because you don't always know what your passion is when you're 18, but it's like, you know, explore your curiosity. And it sounds like you were able to do that, which worked out pretty well. I, I want to shift forward a little bit to that time at Comcast. And I think you hit on some really interesting things there is that you were kind of able to expand into working on these new areas for you. How did you approach that learning? Was like Comcast sending you to training? Were you going back to school? Or was this all like self-taught, the SQL, the Hadoop, the God forbid pig, all of that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, so a lot of it was kind of my own initiative. And I, I wasn't sure why, but I felt like this stuff would be important. Like on that team, we had an engineering side and an analytics side. And so I was on the analytics side. So I was really curious and there was always a lot of work going on. So I just kind of came over and sat with the engineers and asked them how some of this stuff worked, how this worked, how that worked, and started figuring out how more of it worked. And then a lot of it was also just literally being self-taught and reading a lot what was on the internet. And in those first couple uh, months or years, I think what really helped me, and I always give new people to the industry this advice, was actually just reading Hacker News. I know a lot of people say that it's not great because there's a lot of really snide comments and it can be really harsh sometimes. But what helped me was reading what the headlines were. And first it was like a bunch of gibberish to me, like what is flank? what is this? What is OOP? I had no idea, but just by reading it and exploring it and reading up on those topics, I became kind of enmeshed in the tech industry. So it was, it was a blend of both like the team around me learning and me learning, but a lot of it I think was self-taught in those early days. That's kind of my approach to Hacker News too, but I mean, that's just general good internet common sense, which is don't read the comments. I'm curious then too, I mean, a lot of businesses have been managed by Excel over the years and many still are, you know, but you're kind of on the cusp of this transition. Like how has that changed over the years for you that, you know, I mean, I I know we still do a lot of this stuff in in spreadsheets and they're still a very good tool, but I'm curious to, for you to kind of lay out a little bit more, what does the day-to-day look like for you as a data scientist? A lot of work, what I do these days is not even data science related. It's more machine learning engineering, like this new field that's been popping up over the past five years or so. What that is, is so in the beginning, we had data science where you produced analysis, you kind of sat in your cubicle, you produced this analysis, you put the analysis out, and then there was some discussion around it. And then it was either acted on or kind of shelved and never talked about again. Now we're getting to the point where because it's such a developed industry, we're trying to make all this stuff repeatable and processable. And especially for websites and apps where data science is actually a part of the product. So for example, like Netflix, whatever you see on the home screen recommendations or Spotify or Amazon's related products, as terrible as they are. Um, Those are all run by data science algorithms that need to be constantly running and not just be one-offs. So a lot of what I do these days is kind of around production, creating those production environments and hardening all of that analysis so that it can be reproducible and making sure that the data that flows in is correct. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think Mike Waltieri I had on earlier, and one of the things he talked about is the big trends these days is this notion of model ops or model operations, kind of the equivalent of DevOps. And it sounds like you've landed in that space as well. I'm curious, you know, looking on your profile, you know, you have this year where you went to community college and basically did a certificate in computer science. Is this, you know, kind of a reaction of like, hey, as you're getting more and more in, you wanted to shore up kind of the programming side of it. I'm, I'm curious as to what that experience was, especially, you know, so far removed from college or maybe not that far removed from college, but, you know, kind of going back and being a student again. When I was at Comcast, I started my MBA program because I realized that probably in the very, very, very long term, not yet, but I would want to be an executive at some point. And I think that that would probably help me in the future. So I did that part-time for two years. And then 
as I finished that program, I actually came into the data science job and then my current role. And what I realized is a lot of the data science sphere had shifted, like I said, from the one-on-one -on -one analysis to the actual engineering work. So for example, it's nice that you can put together a small analysis on the data set, but what you might usually need to do is actually to get that data from Kafka somehow. And so now you're getting into the really hard engineering problems, and especially if you work with companies that are really big and have a lot of data, you start needing to understand algorithms, you start needing to understand languages other than Python, which is still my strongest language, but for a lot of this machine learning tooling, you need to start working with other things in the ecosystem. And so I realized that because I self-taught, I had none of that. So the certificate program, which I'm not entirely done with, by the way, but I hope to finish it soon, maybe after this pandemic blows over. It was great because I knew that if I did like a MOOC course, or Coursera or anything like that, I just wouldn't be able to concentrate on it because I wouldn't feel like there was enough at stake. But the community college program, it was still online, but it was for actual credits and you get an actual certificate. And there was something that it felt a little more structured and a little more real to me. Like I have to go to this class because my semester is starting. I worked on it that way. I've done three or four classes now and I think it's really tremendously improved my understanding of what goes on like a couple layers removed from the data science ecosystem. And I strongly recommend community college to everyone. It's a really underrated way to get skills. And it's also super, super cheap compared to regular college. And I think it's comparably priced to boot camps, except like these people have been developing curriculum for years and years and years. Maybe there's some press around the boot camp and it's the new thing. Like we have a community college just down the street and they've been doing this for a long time and they get a lot more of the pedagogy, I think, and have a track record that suits, especially working adults. I'm curious, you know, so speaking of the schooling, so you have this econ degree, you have the MBA because like you said, you, you thought you might want to go into management or leadership at some point. I'm curious though, like how have those helped you as a data scientist? Like kind of what are the perhaps some practical ways they've given you a different viewpoint on this engineering and data science role? I think it's pulled me out of the kind of like data scientist box that we sit on. So usually as a data scientist, I'm sitting there, I'm doing all these analyses. Everybody else on the team is super technical. They're doing all these analyses. In the outside of that bubble or box, the non-technical people, the project managers, the C-suite executives, the CEO, the CFO, they have a completely different way of viewing the world. And I think for my MBA program, what really helped me was taking uh, accounting and finance classes. Classes, which I hated, by the way. In retrospect, I, they really helped me because I started to understand that the way that people who manage companies and who are responsible for the budgets of companies think about companies in terms of revenue and costs of projects and opportunity costs of revenue. Before, I was used to thinking of stuff, okay, well, why aren't we doing Spark? We shouldn't be doing Spark. It's the coolest thing. Or why isn't our team doing X or Y? And I started to better understand how some of those decisions propagate. And so what that's helped me to do is to be able to talk to those people on their level in the way that they understand as opposed to in a technical way all the time. So the MBA was tremendously helpful with that. Yeah. And I imagine too, just a, especially in a consulting role where you're often in some regards, you're selling yourself and your company, but you're also helping manage a project. You're, you're trying to provide some outside perspective. 
anything you can do to bring more business savvy to that conversation is going to be beneficial, I would imagine. Yep. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to go into consulting because I'm very, very interested in how business decisions drive, what technologies get implemented and how companies are built. You're right. A consulting role is at least 40% selling yourself and the company. Sales is a very, very hard skill. I know in the technical world, often there's like this general air of either annoyance or a little bit of eye rolling at sales and how aggressive some sales people can be. I've come to understand that if you can sell, that's a really enormous gift that you have. Not just selling uh, like physically transaction work, but the art of convincing people to do projects, the art of convincing someone that your work is good, the art of convincing someone that the technology stack that you chose is correct. That's really, really important, even in very technical environments. When I founded my company, I was our first sales engineer, and boy, did I learn on the job. And I had that attitude that you talked about beforehand, but was basically forced into it. And I wouldn't be where I am today without having spent a lot of time in sales. And it does get a bad rap in this industry. And it's because I think many people just simply don't understand it. They don't understand what happens behind the scenes with sales. And I'm actually, in this case, talking the transactional type stuff. I could not agree more. So these days, though, you're a manager, which implies, you know, you're hiring, bringing on people management, all of that kind of stuff. You know, and one of the common questions, I think, I see routinely come up with engineers as we grow and as we think about our career is, should I go into management? And I'm curious, how did you approach making that decision? Yeah, so I think like a lot of people, it's not necessarily a decision that I made. It was put upon me. Um, That's not really in a negative light, but I think ultimately if you're a high performing person or um, someone that's visible in your organization, you're going to be handed some management responsibilities regardless of whether officially or unofficially, because people see you as capable and they see you as being able to do this other skill set, which is actually very different from engineering. I think that's an interesting paradigm too. But for me, basically, I am still pretty much, I would say 50 to 60% hands-on technical work. But a lot I'm seeing increasingly that that technical work is more advising architecture making those decisions about whether we should pick this AWS service or that one, making decisions about how we should do code reviews, making these kinds of decisions. A lot of it is working with other people on my team to make sure they understand what's going on technically. I'm still doing a lot of the hands-on coding and a lot of my time outside of work is spent working on my own technical projects um, just to make sure I keep my skills sharp. But really, it's all about negotiating what you want to do and uh, what's important for the team. Like, is that other time then also spent on people management? You're kind of in some ways describing a tech lead which has some of this, but is, is there also a people management component? There's some people management component. Um, so the way that a lot of, or at least uh, my consulting company is structured is that we have people that we coach, but that don't necessarily report up to us in the same way that you would in other industries where you work with your manager every day. Your manager is kind of in sync with you, but because we work at so many different projects across so many different industries, it's a different type of relationship and it's more about the goals that you have set for your project in your industry. So I do have people that I talk to in terms of coaching and and mentoring. 
Got it. Now that's an interesting model. I haven't heard kind of of that model, but that makes a lot of sense. Like, especially in a consulting role where you're often like everyone is kind of off on their own project. Although imagine bigger projects you have multiple people on. It's more holistic, I guess, in that way. So the difference between consulting companies and industry, quote unquote, companies is that there's a lot of movement between people. And I actually was not used to this when I started consulting too. Um, So everybody is kind of responsible for their own career path in that sense. There's a coach that will help you, but they're not specific to to what you've been working on. Well, and so that kind of brings up an interesting point. I mean, so, you know, when most people think of consultants, you know, it kind of goes back to that sales piece we were talking about earlier. There's this soft skills required. Did you feel like that was something you already kind of had a sense for, or did you feel like you had to do a lot of learning around how to be a consultant from a soft skills standpoint? I definitely had to do a lot of learning how to be a consultant, but just soft skills in general. And I think this is something, so I field a lot of questions from a lot of people that are maybe newer to industry, newer to data science. And I recognize myself in them because when you first start, you think that your job is just to do a good job or turn in the answer or write the piece of code. And that's it. As you get more senior in your career, you start to understand that the way that you provide those answers the way that you do that piece of code, the way you present that information is just as important. So that's kind of the first part. And the second part was specifically related to consultancy is there's a layer on top of that. So in a company, you're internal and you're representing just yourself, but as a consultant, you're also representing your company. So you have to view those two things in parallel as you work with clients. And that was definitely something that I had to learn as well. And like you said, a lot of it is around sales and presentation and making sure that you kind of put the best forward. If you can, what were some actual actionable things that you recall? Like, hey, I need to specifically work on. Does anything come to mind that way? So one thing is there's some sales engineering work that I, or pre-engineering work that I do, I guess. So usually it involves going into a potential client and they'll say, we have this problem and our job is to say, okay, well, I can help you with this. Usually I would start by coming in and saying, okay, well, it's obvious. All you need is Spark. Just install this and then it'll work and you can do this. When someone asks you for help, that's not really what they're looking for. They're looking for you to understand their problem and to empathize with you and to say, okay, here's some possible paths forward for a solution. And they're looking for someone basically that they can trust to give them advice. They're not looking for a specific old technical solution. You know, on occasion, I would imagine it's a one-off, but they're really looking for somebody longer term who can stay with them and, and help them grow with it. Changing lanes a little bit, you know, tell us a, a little bit more about your writing and publishing. Cause you know, I think, as I said in the lead and, you know, pretty accomplished uh, writer these days, I know you've got, a a newsletter and a few other things. Tell us a little bit more about what you do on that front and perhaps how it's helped your career. Yeah, so I've loved to write since I was very, very little. I don't know if I have it or my parents have it, but I wrote my autobiography when I was five. It's something that's always been kind of second nature to me. In my career, I started blogging a long time ago, but it was a personal blog. And as I've blogged and blogged and blogged more, I've gotten a better sense for how to write in public for a public-facing internet. So a couple of years ago, I started my technical blog. And I always recommend that people blog, at least in privately at first, until they get better or comfortable. 
because every time I've had a job interview, people have talked about either my blog or my newsletter or my Twitter because it helps people to know the human side of you. That's not just your resume. But yeah, so I started technical blogging and then uh, newsletters became a thing, I want to say over the past two years or so. And I heard about Substack, uh, which is where I run my newsletter. And I said, okay, why not? I already do writing. Let's see where this takes me. And so now apparently I have this newsletter that people actually subscribe and pay for. It's really enjoyable for me. I do it just because I love to write and I'm often frustrated with the technical news, and so I want to write my own take on it that involves maybe sometimes more research um, or a different point of view. But I've gotten all sorts of answers from that. Like I've, I've gotten contacts to write different things. I have people emailing me with insider information based on those stories. So the newsletter has been really fun and really interesting to write, and it's um, helped me professionally too, I think. I didn't realize you were getting paid for it too on the subscription model. So Substack is kind of like a Patreon, but focused explicitly on delivering newsletter content. Is that right? It is. Yeah. And so on Substack, you can do a completely free newsletter or you can do one that's free and has a subscription component. So what I do is I release one free newsletter a week and then one for paid subscribers. But the idea is if you subscribe, you're paying more to keep like the idea of Norm Cortec, which is my newsletter afloat, than paying for any piece of writing. And so in that way, it's kind of like Ben Thompson, who's kind of the king of newsletters, Stratechery, in which there's a paid article that he puts out, and then there's a subscription piece. Yeah, I do have paid subscribers at this point. Yeah, and we'll be sure to link that up in the show notes. But so it's Norm Cortec. What's the genesis of the name there? Someone on Twitter joked a while ago that I was the most norm core of data scientists because I would always say stuff like, oh, you don't need to do this in Hadoop. You can probably just do it in the command line or you don't need to spin up Kafka. It's too complicated. Basically, my, my whole MO is you might not need this stuff that you're thinking about doing just because you read about it in some in-flight magazine, <laughs> whether that's Hadoop, whether that's Spark. I think right now I'm trying to talk people out of complicated cloud stuff that they don't need. But basically my MO is there's always a place and time for those things, but there's also a place and time to just kind of take a step back and take like a second level look at it. And so the second level look is not only at the technology itself. So I've written about uh, why WeWork didn't need Kafka and I actually got some pushback from Kafka on that. And then a couple months later, we were imploded. I'm not saying that was the cause of that, but who knows? Yeah, the idea behind the newsletter is, okay, there's like this first level of crazy news going on. And then there's a second level where we want to analyze things or look at things in a little bit of a different lens. And that can be any one of number of areas. In fact. I'm curious though, too, because you mentioned, you know, kids and full-time job. Where do you find time for all of this? Obviously, my husband is wrangling the kids right now as we speak. A, I have a lot of help. So my husband, my parents live nearby. Um, I have a full-time nanny, or I did before the pandemic. So all of that, I, I wouldn't be able to do it without. I just wouldn't. Um, and the second thing is I usually try to write after the kids go to bed. And for me, actually, one of the reasons why I was able to continue the newsletter over my maternity leave last year when I wasn't able to do some other stuff is because, again, for me, writing is kind of easy and natural. And I can put together a piece in a couple of days, whereas, for example, I wouldn't be able to 
write a program in a couple of days because it requires sustained concentration. So I'm actually working on the technical blog post right now. I've been working on it for, I want to say, since January. Podcasting is kind of my same outlet that way, you know, as I was looking for something that, you know, I could really limit the hours for. And it sounds like that's the case for you with writing, which is fantastic. So in many ways, it's something you've always loved. And so like, hey, now I can get paid for it a little bit as well. What's been the most surprising thing about your career today? Or let's go all the way back to, you know, how true to your autobiography has your life been? All of my life, I've tried to actively avoid becoming the stereotype of the Russian software developer. And I realized a couple of years ago that I'm becoming the stereotype of the Russian software developer. I think I've always viewed myself as like a very, I guess, left brain person, very much into humanities, uh, very much into writing, very much into the arts. And I never thought I had any real skills or capabilities to engage in the technical side, which is why I didn't major in, for example, engineering. But I'm surprised that I do both now and that I do very highly technical things. I never would have thought that about myself at 18. Wow. Yeah, that's incredibly honest and such a good insight for anybody listening to the show of that. What we all have, I think, of these limiting beliefs, right, about ourselves. Somebody said, you know, the lies we tell ourselves are the worst ones, right? Flashing forward into the engineering manager role, what's the best thing about that? And what's the most challenging or perhaps this lead consultant, if you will, whatever the the appropriate title here is, what's the best thing and what's the most challenging thing? I see individual contributor work is that you can now affect some of the changes that you are frustrated by. So for example, if you are an IC and you said, oh, I don't know why we're still using this database, what could you do? You can complain to your boss. I mean, you could potentially have a meeting, but when you become more senior and more of a leadership role, people actually start listening to you and you can start proposing those kinds of solutions and have them be carried through. The worst or most different thing is that a lot of people have written about this, but it's a completely different frame of work. So for example, if you're an engineer and you do a code commit on Friday, it's like, okay, you're done. You can go relax. You can do your weekend. But as a manager, you're dealing with more people things. You're dealing with more meetings. And so you might not see the resolution to your issue for weeks or months. And it might involve a lot of finessing and it might involve A lot of different approaches because everybody is different too. So you have to figure out how to approach people in a way that makes sense for them. It's very, very vague. You probably don't know you're doing a good job for a couple of months or you could be doing well one week and one week it completely changes. Um, So it's a very, very different mindset from pure technical delivery work. Living in ambiguity was the biggest thing for me of like just the state of you have so many different forms of information and some of them are competing and and in fact some information you get as a manager can even be malicious at times right and that somebody's actively trying to disrupt you or disrupt the team well and and then i would add too i mean in the old days it was kind of top down and these days like management is very much this matrix cross-functional like i don't want to say just bottom up per se but kind of just this mixture of top down and bottom up (laughs) i don't know if you've experienced that too yes it's it's a lot more vague um and it's a lot flatter which makes it even harder i think vicky you know this this show is called developmentor spend a moment talking about a mentor or two that you know has really helped you along your path and perhaps the impact that they've had on you or maybe a nugget or a relationship that, you know, has been 
critical. It sounds like while you're at Comcast, you know, that support you got from your team of, hey, I want to venture into this new area. My boss at Comcast uh, was a huge mentor to me because it was my first time in like a highly technical environment. And he had one-on-ones with me, which I'd never had before somehow. That was a huge grounding force for me. And I think the other relationships that I've had were people who had time to sit with me and explain something technical to me. For any amount of time, I've really valued that. Right now in my current role, it's anybody in my leadership who's basically like, okay, let's do the sales thing or let's do this thing. And I get to watch them do it. Um, And that's really valuable to me too. So just a number of different things. I think what all of them have had in common is they've given me time and they've allowed me to watch them do X or Y or Z. So I myself do mentorship online. I answer a lot, a lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of emails, but I really have come to believe that you cannot have a relationship with a mentor unless you've spent some time with them physically at least before. You can continue one online, but you probably cannot start a mentorship relationship online. Yeah, I think that's so true. The, you know, at the end of the day, despite all of the sequestering we are doing right now at the moment, having that human connection and even video is, while better, not fully there. <laughs> I'm curious then, you know, what are a couple of actionable tips for let's say an aspiring tech writer or somebody who wants to kind of combine their data science skills and their tech skills? Uh, One is start a blog, just start writing. Um, I know that's really hard in 2020 because there's no like single blog platform that you can go to, like used to be able to just spin up a WordPress and start writing, but pick what you want to do. And that'll actually help you learn some of the technical parts too. If you implement it, write little things. If you've never written before, it might be bad. It might be really bad. I think the first maybe two years I wrote stuff, it was just awful, but I wasn't writing for a huge audience. So it didn't matter. I was just kind of more writing for myself. The more you practice at that and the more you practice at expressing what you talk about. So it can be either a side project. It can be stuff you've done at work. And by the way, it's stuff you've done at work. You can write about it obliquely, which is what I usually do um, because I can't go into specifics. And so I've done stuff where, for example, I wrote the case of the broken Lambda where I wrote about a specific Lambda function that I worked on. I didn't talk about the project. I didn't talk about specifics, but just about this one specific function that broke. Yeah, just start working. Um, It can be something as small as 100 words on what you did today. It can be a collection of actions that you've taken. I saw this uh, meme a couple weeks ago, or back when there was still bottled water. It was an image of these different types of bottles of water in a grocery store. So there was like the Poland Spring and Perrier, I guess that's fancy. There's Fiji and all of them are together in the bottled water aisle. And it's basically like if there's these many types of bottled waters, then why aren't you writing a blog post about whatever it is you want to write about? And the idea behind that is everything's already been written about. So why would I write about it? It's because you have your own perspective on it. And that's really where the value is. And if people care about something that you write about, they'll care about your perspective and future employers will and future coworkers and just future people on the internet will care about it too. So all I say is just start writing, start reading a lot of stuff and start putting your opinions and thoughts and technical ideas out there. Yeah, it's just great advice that that start. And then, you know, like a lot of times just start with a half hour a day, even 20 minutes, right? And you'd be surprised how much you can 
get done in that time period. And I love your little nugget there too, is you just started writing for yourself, right? And then it, it expanded from there. Yeah, I didn't have any lofty goals. I wasn't focused on monetization strategies or SEO. I was just interested in writing about the details of my life because I what was popular at that time was personal blogging. And I think right now, these days, probably a good platform to get started on would be dev.to. If you're just getting started in the field, a lot of people write about different beginner things that they've written about on that platform. We'll have to link that up in the show notes. I think I've one other uh, guest on the show is on that platform as well. So we'll be sure to link that up. Vicky, it's been awesome to have you on the show, despite all the, like I said, the sequestering. Final question, where can our listeners best follow you, learn from you, hear more from you? On Twitter, I'm at vboykis, and my website is just vickyboykis.com. And the Substack uh, link again was? vicky.substack.com. Awesome. We will be sure to link those up. And Vicky, once again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, If you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S, all one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.